Hello, and welcome to the Andwise Podcast. We are delighted to have you here spending some time with us. Andwise is a technology platform that aims to empower medical students, trainees, and early career physicians navigate the complex financial journey that we all find ourselves on as we aim to help others. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Today, we have Dr. John Michal with us. He's one of our medical advisory board members, a cardiac surgeon, and I'm going to let him introduce himself because he's done a lot of innovative things. Thanks so much for joining, Dr. Michal. Thanks, Varun. I appreciate you having me on and appreciate all y'all are doing and wise. Yeah, as you mentioned, my background is cardiac surgery. I did that for about 25 years. And over the course of that time, I founded a large practice that covers um, a large part of the Mountain West. And then I ran CT surgery for a health system regionally and then ultimately co-chaired a national cardiovascular service line for a large nonprofit. My path started to diverge, you know, in the last 10 years of my career where I was already running a practice. And then as I was doing other health system related things, there were a lot of other opportunities that kind of came to me and I didn't necessarily go seeking them, but um, opportunistically, I ended up starting a practice management business, um, some vascular practices, and then a perfusion staffing business and ultimately a cardiovascular focused physician locum staffing business that ultimately grew to be nationwide. And it really changed the course of my career a lot as I delved more into these entrepreneurial things and then eventually sold a lot of these businesses and got into uh, healthcare investing and some other areas. So that's my story in a nutshell. Yeah, that's awesome. You've done a lot of stuff and a, a lot of surgeons I know barely make time for anything outside of the OR. So the fact you've done so much stuff with 25 years in the OR, that's amazing. Do you remember like when you were getting started early days, like perhaps residency or fellowship, or was there any guidance or mentorship you received with like life outside of the OR? I ask that because we all as physicians go through an apprenticeship of sorts. So the medical and the surgical stuff you learn from other people, but how about stuff outside of the OR? Did you have anyone in your life or anyone in your family, a doc? Yeah, nobody in my family was a physician. And I would say during medical school residency, and, and I did a decade of training, you know, all of that was really just clinically focused learning with clinical mentors. And um, that was really still my main focus for the first part of my career. And, and I think if you do want to go on to do entrepreneurial or other things, having that track record of being an expert in your field uh, is really valuable. And so I think that it, it ultimately served me well, but it wasn't really until I started to do other things outside of cardiac surgery, whether those were business related within the health system or business related independently, or even ultimately the investing and, and private equity side of things. That's when I really started to seek out mentors and guidance outside of the clinical realm. And so yeah, that's when that started. And it was really a very, I didn't have a real clear way of doing that. And I don't think it's a very efficient process, but I will say that if you do reach out to folks and explain to them why you're interested in meeting with them and what your interests are, I would say 90 plus percent of the time, they're more than happy to take the time to meet with you. Yeah. 
No, that's great advice. In the pre-COVID days, I guess there were a lot of in-person meetups and stuff. Did, did you go to any of those or was it all online networking and LinkedIn similar fashion? Or yeah, that's, that's a great question. I actually really did it through grassroots, organic, local, and then slowly expanding out. And I would, you know, have people that were in that space that I felt like I would benefit from knowing and I would reach out to them and meet them for coffee. Obviously, this was a long time ago and certainly way pre-COVID, but would meet them for coffee or whatever was appropriate. And then they would say, oh, do you know so and suggest I meet other folks and just slowly expanded my network that way. And I think physicians struggle to do this mostly because it is horribly inefficient if 20 or 25 percent of the people you're meeting with are not the wrong people and they're nice folks and interesting but they don't really advance your goals in any way uh, you're not meeting enough people but having that kind of a, a miss rate a, a lot of physicians who feel so pressed for time um, struggle with and then it's also work to maintain those contacts and stay in touch with them but i do find it beneficial even though it is inefficient and non-linear yeah, no, that's a great point. And one, one of the things you were telling me over email really resonated with me. You were saying that it's all about relationships. And uh, a lot of times you have to show up and volunteer and offer to help uh, other people, either for experience and not expect anything in return, right? You have no idea what those relationships will lead to in the future. I think that's spot on. And I, I would volunteer to help or do things or get involved in things with no expectation of anything in return in terms of compensation or benefit, but simply because I wanted the experience. And if you think about all the things you did in medical school and residency, it wasn't for compensation. It was for the benefit of the experience and the knowledge. And, and I think you got to approach this kind of learning in the same way. And there really is little translation between your medical knowledge and the expertise you have there and the applying that to a healthcare related business or a startup or something like that. And you definitely have a valuable perspective, but there's not this direct um, translation where there's monetary value that's easily uh, as assigned to that knowledge. If you approach it with that learner's mindset of, I just want to soak this up and learn more, and you're free with your time and your energy and your efforts and also free with your connections and you will run into people that could benefit other folks and making those connections and and doing so for the benefit of the two people you're connecting and expecting nothing in return i think that's the best way to approach that yeah that's great advice thank you and then in addition to your md you also have an mba did you get that earlier in your career medical school some people do a combined program or did you get it later on i got it later on in my career and i would say i absolutely learned a lot and it was beneficial but when i started the program i had grown multiple businesses sold multiple businesses i had been running a million plus dollar bi-weekly payroll and so i felt like i had a lot of financial skills, but certainly I did learn more. And when I went into the program, I mostly went into the program because I was tired of being dismissed as, oh, look at this, this nice little doctor wants to play business person. And, and that, that really wasn't the case, but I didn't have some outward rubber stamp of my ability to do that. 
And ultimately, I think the benefits of it were, number one, I did learn and I did expand my network. And there's no question I have better skills at doing some of these things and a better uh, understanding of a lot of principles that I vaguely understood before. But the other thing I think it really does is it shows that you made the time, effort, commitment to go and get this piece of paper and that you're serious about expanding your career beyond being a clinician. And so I think um, there's some validation of having made the effort that gets uh, a little bit of credibility as well. Yeah. And with surgeon hours as it is, that cannot have been easy. You must have had to sacrifice nights and weekends. I'm assuming this was some sort of executive program where you did it over the course of a number of years. Yeah. Was it? I did it at the University of Texas in Dallas, where they actually have one of the best healthcare focused MBAs. And a guy named Dr. John McCracken and Dr. Bob Kaiser run that program. And, and I would highly recommend it. And it is designed for physicians and you tend to go there in, I want to say four or five day chunks uh, about every other month. And then there's obviously coursework in between those trips. So it does make it so that it, you can fit it into your schedule pretty well. And they've been doing a healthcare focused physician MBA program for about 20 years. So it really is exceptional. Yeah, that's awesome resource for people to have to look up that I get so many questions from people asking whether they need an MBA or a master's in healthcare administration or something like that. And everyone's career path is different and it just depends what you're going to do mm -hmm. with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't, don't go spend the time, effort and money if you're not going to use it and you're not going to really make a meaningful pivot in that direction. Yep. If you've built so many businesses, how did you find your, I like to call them like financial and legal dream team. You obviously know a lot just from building them yourself, but a lot of people obviously have to get lawyers, accountants to keep their books, perhaps payroll. Excuse me. Part of Andwise's mission is trying to connect people to the right professionals. There's obviously doctors sometimes have a big target on their back or bullseye because they're like dentists. They're called quote unquote dumb money where we don't know who we're hiring, what exactly we want. Did you, um, if, if you use these external professional find and bet them yourself, or did you have word of mouth from colleagues or do you remember how you built? Yeah, them? sure. I would say mostly you would start with word of mouth, whatever community you're in, there's other physicians and they have found folks that they like and work with. And definitely, just like anything, it takes a little work to find the right person. And you got to go meet with two or three of them. And one of the things about meeting with multiple people is you might really like the first person, but by the time you've met with a third or fourth person, you've heard kind of different philosophies and different ways of approaching it. And um, one of those may resonate more than, you know, the first person that you met with. I think it gives you a little more context the more of those people you work with. And I think that applies to both kind of accounting, finance type stuff, legal things, as well as investment management and things like that. And then I think also you may evolve and grow beyond some of the people that you work with initially when you're first getting out of school or residency and you're you know, in the early phases of your career, your needs for accounting, legal and investment advice are very different than you know, later in your career when it's maybe more complex. And, and I've probably gone through maybe three sets of folks in each of those categories over time as my needs have evolved. Yeah. 
No, you're absolutely right. If you're just fresh out of training and you take some academic employed physician role where you're being paid as a W-2 employee, your tax returns are probably pretty simple. And mm -hmm. then fast forward a couple of years later, if you become a partner or you start investing in other stuff like real estate or becoming an angel investor and so you might have all sorts of complex situations and have to file in multiple states and things like that. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. exactly right. Needs evolve. Did you find the the past few decades when you were a surgeon, would other like junior doctors come to you for advice? Money is such a taboo subject. As physicians, we always seek mentorship from people to get better at our technical skills and our craft, which is for most people, their primary focus as it should be blessed to be able to take care of patients. But a taboo subject, right? To ask people about, hey, how did you become so successful outside of the OR, outside of the hospital or clinic? Did, did you find any of your trainees informally hitting you up for advice or junior colleagues or anything like that or not really? No, we never had trainees. I was in private practice, but the, the folks that I worked with as my success in other areas became more visible over time, people would ask me that. And I think there's a lot of people, I'm in my early 50s now, there's a lot of people my age that are looking to diversify either into other things or away from medicine entirely. A lot of those folks are absolutely coming and asking, what did you do? What pathway can I follow? And I think my biggest generalization around that is there are people who are either cut from two types of cloth and they're either willing to take risk to do something like that or they're not. There's been a, quite a few folks that I know and some maybe I mentored to some degree. Those folks who are willing to take risk and it's important to them to diversify and go do something else and they know it might not work and there's no guarantees and they're going to you know, definitely have a change in income to go and take that journey. And then there's other folks who they really like the idea, but at the end of the day, they are either too risk averse or they're not in a position where they have the luxury of being able to have a change in annual compensation to go and start something new. Uh, and, and I think a lot of it boils down to folks' personality and whether they're a, a personality that wants to take that leap or not, and also whether they have a financial position of strength where they feel comfortable taking that leap. Because even during COVID, I know a lot of surgeons and a lot of heart surgeons are really high wage earners, but even during COVID, I would have folks call me who are getting paid on RVU production and all of a sudden there's no elective surgery. And they said, how are you paying your bills? And it was astonishing to me that here's folks who are making in the high six figures, if not seven figures or more, and then they go for three or four months or whatever it was without elective surgery and they're struggling to pay their bills. And it really highlighted that those people are not in a position of financial strength. And there's no way that those folks, even if they really had the mindset to do it and had the best plan, would ever have the financial foundation to go and do something different. Whereas other folks um, have, you know, maybe planned or saved or done other things so that they're in a position where they say, hey, I'm gonna go start this new venture and I'm not gonna pay myself for six months. Uh, and I'm okay with that. And I have the resources to be able to go and make this decision. I think you're absolutely right. And what you're getting at, which you've written to me over email is that you can essentially outspend any level of income right? 
like a yeah. lot of uh, these opportunities that come your way if you want to take risk or invest in something that isn't like the S&P 500 or well, do something else. A lot of doctors, unfortunately, like you said, being very high wage earners don't have even, I'm just making up a number, but like $25,000 lying around, quote unquote, extra to invest in something because mm -hmm. they're living paycheck essentially. Yeah. And I think that's a really common trap. And what I would say a lot of early physicians don't realize is that you finish training, you get a job in practice and whatever you're earning when you're out in practice, it is not really going to change dramatically over the course of your time in practice. So if you finish training at, at whatever, 33 and you're making uh, X amount, then except for the little bit of cost of living and inflation and things like that, you're probably going to be making X amount for the next 30 some years. And that's not true of a lot of professions. If you're an attorney or you go into business or you're an engineer or whatever it might be, then typically your wages would increase with uh, seniority and you know extra experience. But in the medical compensation is set based on work RVUs and other things. And those don't distinguish between the senior most experienced person with super high quality outcomes or the brand new person who's doing this for the first time. The, the compensation is exactly the same. And so if you go into that and you're 33 and maybe you just got married or you're not yet married and you don't have any children and you really all of a sudden you get this big jump in income and you have been training and sacrificing for a number of years and you have pent up demand and then you adjust your lifestyle to address your pent up demand and your lack of lifestyle during residency. And the only thing you really have to service is maybe your debt, but then you add on to that. Okay. Now I need to start saving for retirement and you've lost some of the time value of money because you're just starting to save in your thirties. And then all of a sudden you add on to that a spouse maybe, and then you add on to that some kids and then you add on to that some college savings. And you add all these extra expenses, but you don't have a comparable rise in your income. Then all of a sudden, that's how you end up 45, 48 years old, and you're working extra shifts, you're doing all this other stuff, because now you, you've got to grow your paycheck to meet all these other needs, and you don't have a, a cushion or a safety net, and you're getting big paychecks, but you're living essentially paycheck to paycheck. And that is a trap that a lot of physicians fall into. Yeah, absolutely. We see it all around us, unfortunately. And now some of the younger physicians are coming out with much higher student debt burden. I'm in my 40s. Mm -hmm. I came out with like 180K. I hear some of these numbers now. They're like 300K, 400K, depending on if they went to a private undergrad and private med school. It's like starting life with a big mortgage. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then they want to go either they or their spouse or their family or their friends expect them to live this quote doctor lifestyle which is has certain trappings and expectations around it and it's hard to realistically afford all of those things and service your debt and create savings yeah did you ever think about geographic arbitrage for cost of living 
or did you wind up in a place that you trained and where family was already settled? I mentioned that because I grew up in Australia and I stayed on the East Coast and then I married a Jersey girl. So I have no choice. I am stuck in New Jersey forever, <laughs> but it's one of the highest cost of living places, high property taxes. I wonder if I was single and had no connection, whether that's something that younger physicians should be thinking about, because obviously certain states don't have state income tax, property values different vastly across the whole of the United States. Did you ever think about that stuff or not really? You went to the places that you, you wanted to be. I went to the place that had the best opportunity and a place that my wife and I wanted to be. And for us also, we wanted to hopefully try and stay in the same place for a long time because we had moved around a lot growing up, both of us. And so that was how we ended up where we did. And I'm in Colorado. I would always, I used to always say there's only two, two reasons you move. It's either a job or a love. And you probably could add in family to that as a third one. But those are the main reasons people relocate. And I would say that the financial aspects of that were zero part of the consideration when we moved because, you know, I, I was looking for a job and I had to choose amongst the ones that were available. But I will say that I've been in the locums and staffing business for a long time in a variety of capacities, everything from physicians to perfusionists to the advanced practitioner people, and then now ECMO specialists. And that is something that we absolutely do see in staffing where there are areas that have very high cost of living and more and more people are working essentially shift work 10 days a month, 14 days a month or, or something like that. And then choosing to live in a very low cost of living place. There is some arbitrage that you can create doing that. Yeah, that's a great point. And the, the other thing I didn't realize until I had kids was that Having family close by is like quite helpful. <laughs> I grew up very far away from all my cousins and stuff. Having our family driving distance away is super duper helpful and nice despite it, the it high is, Yeah, it's super helpful. It's a luxury for you and, and, and your co-parent and it's wonderful for your kids. And th those things you can't put a dollar amount on, but it's also super valuable in terms of cost savings because childcare is extremely expensive. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned ECMO and I was wondering if we could touch on that for a second. I, I've been following your LinkedIn for like the past year. You had a post where you um, stopped operating after 25 years, 5,000 plus surgeries, and now you've um, started the company or you're a part of the company, right? Innovative ECMO concepts. Yeah, um, I quit operating a year, a little over a year and a half ago. And I had been exposed to ECMO in the 90s, and I did some pediatric surgery before I did cardiac, and we were putting babies on ECMO in the 90s. And really, over the last uh, 25 years, ECMO has exploded in terms of its capability and the outcomes, especially in adults. And so now, 70-plus percent of all the people that are put on ECMO um, survive. And these are folks who generally speaking, ECMO is seen as inappropriately, in my opinion, seen as a last-ditch effort. And if you think about folks who are really circling the drain, then we put them on ECMO and 70 plus percent of them survive. And so I also had, had run a perfusion business, so I was really familiar with that space, both clinically and in terms of the operations of it. And Innovative ECMO Concepts has been around for a decade, and they really are the largest business in this space providing ECMO training and education 
ECMO program startup and then ECMO bedside coverage. So we train well over a thousand plus people a year. We start about more than one program a month and we sit over 150,000 hours of bedside ECMO across 100 hospitals nationwide. And what really attracted me to the space was I personally think we're only scratching the surface, treating maybe 1% of the patients that could be treated with ECMO. And if we were to expand that, just go from 1% penetration to even 20, 30, 40% penetration, then we would grow the total number of ECMO cases in the United States from maybe 10 or 12,000 to several hundred thousand. And then you talk about 70% of those people surviving. Um, I think there's probably you know, half a million people a year that would survive if ECMO were more widely used. And so we're really just focusing on expanding awareness and access to ECMO for patients. Yeah, that's amazing. You're absolutely right. I felt ashamed that when I saw your post, I was like, wow, I've actually never seen a patient on ECMO. And I trained at like New York University. I've worked at UCSF at Brigham. I'm not a surgeon. I'm an internal medicine doctor. Mm -hmm. I've worked in ICUs and stuff, and I just haven't seen it. Dumb question, but do these hospital systems like have to buy like very expensive equipment or is that the rate limiting step or is it the trained staff that you need? Yeah, it's more knowledge and expertise than it is equipment. The equipment's not cheap, but there's plenty of equipment in a hospital that's more expensive than ECMO equipment. And it really comes down to training and expertise. And then it also, there's a lot of myths around it. I had done a whole Kevin MD podcast about the myths around ECMO and the myths are that, oh, everybody's going to die. The hospital's going to lose money. The outcomes are terrible. It's super complicated, et cetera, et cetera. And in reality, those things are not true. The outcomes are very good, as I mentioned earlier. The knowledge that you need, it's really no more complex than, you know, we have patients on dialysis all the time. We're taking the blood out of the body, running it through a machine and doing some treatment or therapy to it, and then returning it to the body. So in this case, we're simply removing carbon dioxide and oxygenating the blood, as opposed to removing urea and other things that we do on dialysis. So it's not inherently super complicated. And and I would say in terms of the economics of it, ECMO therapy is extremely lucrative for hospitals. It's probably the most uh, highly reimbursed thing that your hospital could do outside of a heart transplant with complication or CAR T-cell therapy. And so there's really not a lot of reasons we shouldn't be doing this. And the major barrier is and people think it's scary and, and we have to solve that with education and training and people's comfort level. And we solve that again with education, training, and simply having more people do it, the more, like anything, the more you do something, the more comfortable you're going to get with it. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks. And we're coming up on time. The last question I wanted to ask you is that once, you know, for, for people that are just starting their career, once they've got the basics, their basic ducks in order, built an emergency fund, tackled high interest debt come up with some sort of savings plan, maxed out their 401k match, all of those basic steps. If if people have an interest in doing something, starting out smaller scale on what you've done in terms of healthcare investing, what do you think the right strategy is for someone that has no knowledge? Is it to try to go to some of these meetups for capital groups? Because now the reason I ask is because nowadays in the world of social media, if you're ever on any of these um, social uh, media sites, immediately you start getting targeted by ads. And I feel that it's very hard to vet the groups 
because they're just spending money on Google ad dollars or Facebook mm-hmm. dollars. I'm not necessarily saying they're bad, but like, how do you get your feet wet when you have no experience in that type of investing? I think that's really hard. I would not invest any money that you actually need or don't expect to lose or aren't prepared to lose, I guess is maybe a better way to say it. And anybody that is advertising to try and get your investment is probably not somebody I would invest with. The best investments I've made are ones with people that I know who, and and you could know them as a friend of a friend or something else where they have an idea, they have a product, they have some new business, whatever it is. And those friends and family kind of investments tend to be the best because you understand the person you're dealing with, you are close enough to the founder that they can truly explain the business to you and you can understand it. And usually if someone takes money from someone they know, they are going to work a lot harder to try and make the whole thing work and return that money to the person as opposed to taking it from a nameless, faceless investor. That does not you know, allow you to have, you know, cast a wide net, but I think that probably gives you the best chance of success. And I think secondary to that, I would say there are more and more syndicates that will put investments out to investors. And if you were going to play in that space, I would say make lots of small bets because your ability to truly risk and understand and risk adjust any one of them is probably very limited. So you're going to have to play just the odds game of placing a lot of bets and hoping a few big wins offset the the other ones. But candidly, I would say at that point in your career, you're probably better off to stick to a little bit more conservative approach Um, because the other downside of all those types of placements are they're, they're extremely illiquid. So if you needed that money for some reason, it's essentially impossible to access it. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. And and also the other thing is a lot of them have minimums, right? So if you're just starting out on your journey, they're not going. Most of them aren't going to let you put in thousand dollars. So yeah, that, that, that's right. Yeah, most of them probably have twenty five thousand dollar or more minimums. There are a few that have smaller. But if you think about, you probably need to make a large number of bets to diversify and set the odds in your favor that one of them is going to win. All of a sudden, it becomes a pretty large amount of money. Listen, this has been so enlightening. Thank you so much for your time and lots of luck for all of your continued success in all of these ventures. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoy watching what you and Kanab are doing at Anwise, and I think you're serving a real need for the positions out there. Thanks again. All right. Take care, everyone.